Welcome to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. My name is Holly Deaver, and I'm the owner and operator of Rosebud Wellness, where I practice women's holistic health, utilizing acupuncture, Chinese herbalism, yoni steaming, Arvigo abdominal massage, and the fertility awareness method. This podcast will be part conversations with women who are mothers or hope to be mothers on their journey through menstruation, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood, and part information about the holistic health practices that I use in my practice. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. If you are interested in learning more about the fertility awareness method, or if you don't know what I'm talking about and you would like to know what I'm talking about, then I have just the resource for you. I recently released a three-part video series that is completely free, and in that video series, I talk about what the fertility awareness method is. So essentially, it involves tracking and charting your three main fertile signs, which include basal body temperature, cervical mucus, and cervical position, which is an optional sign. So in the video series, I talk a little bit about how to track and chart each of those signs and what some of those signs can reveal to you in terms of your goals for for your fertility if you are calling in a pregnancy if you're avoiding pregnancy if you are simply using this method to assess your overall health we also talk about the cycle parameters and what we are looking at in terms of what's optimal for a healthy cycle then we talk about the applications of the fertility awareness method. So in terms of optimizing your chances of conception, if you're someone that's wanting to get pregnant, we talk about timing sex appropriately so that you are having sex when you're actually fertile. If you believe that you're fertile every single day of the cycle, then you are definitely going to want to check out this video series because that is not true. The fertility awareness method can also be used to optimize your cycle. So we're looking at all of these parameters and then from there, making tweaks to nutrition, potentially lifestyle, sleep, supplementation, all sorts of things to optimize your cycle so that uh, pregnancy is more possible. It can also be used to avoid pregnancy without the use of synthetic hormones or devices. And basically the reason that it can be used for achieving and avoiding pregnancy is because you make different decisions during your fertile window, depending on what your goals are. So either way, you're identifying when you're fertile and when you're not. And then the way that you're engaging sexually will change based on your goals and your intentions, as well as the goals and intentions of your partner. Uh, the fertility awareness method can also be used to assess your overall health or identify any underlying health conditions, things like your metabolism, cervical issues, endocrine issues, things like PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, endometriosis, all sorts of things can be revealed by tracking and charting your cycle. So it is a really essential piece of information, I think, for all people that menstruate and that have uteruses or uteri. So I would love to see you in my free video series and you can find it on my Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness. And it is linked in my bio there. It's often linked in my stories as well. If you have any trouble finding it, send me a message at rosebud underscore wellness. Welcome back everyone to the womb wisdom podcast. I am here today with Molly Schoner, I hope I pronounced that correctly. 
She just told me, but then I, I always freak out about people's last names. Um, so she, her business is called trying times coaching and she's a mother of two herself. And she specializes in working with infertility, uh, women that are going through assisted reproductive technologies and, um, pregnancy loss. So welcome to you, Molly. Thank you, Holly. <laughs> Thank you for having me a second time. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we got some new stuff to talk about and it'll all feel new because it's been a while. So <laughs> yeah, so Molly was on an episode. I can't remember the exact number. I'll link it in the show notes, um, but it was quite a while ago. We Neither of us can remember if it was one or two. I think it was two years ago, honestly. I think you might be right. <laughs> and um, the it was one of the worst sound quality episodes I've ever had because I tried to record it at my parents' house and the internet kept going in and out. So anyway, if you listen to the episode and it's crappy, that's why. So <laughs> I'm really excited to give Molly another opportunity to share her personal story, but we're also going to be talking more about the work she does professionally with other women in this episode too. So um, let's start where I always like to start. When you got your first period, if you can remember your early menstruating years, anything that stands out to you about that? Um, yeah, I think I got it, um, right in the sort of anticipated, um, time. It was right around my, um, 12th birthday. Um, and yes, that's true. I was <laughs> fact checking myself and, um, it was, you know, the first one, I just, I don't remember many, of the early periods, but I do remember that first one. Cause it was really a doozy and I had crazy cramps. And even though, you know, at that point you've been through health class and it's on your horizon and you kind of like are prepped kind of as much as you can be. Um, oh, I thought I was dying that first, the cramps from that first period were so overwhelming. And I was like, um, do I have food poisoning? Like, am I going to throw up? I had to sit down. Um, so the first one was rough. Um, but after that, luckily I know not everyone can say the same, but after that, it did kind of, um, settle into a groove. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, very disruptive, um, to my life usually. So I did get lucky sort of in that regard. It was pretty, pretty simple, but I remember the first one was uh, an adjustment. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So then were you put on birth control at any point? Um, no, not, um, cause, because again, I wasn't sort of dealing with, I know again, people sometimes have trouble with, you know, cramping like that extreme to where it continues and it is disrupting your, your life and you truly like can't do activities and stuff. And for me, it, it didn't really, it's, it did sort of level itself out luckily. Um, so I wasn't really on birth control until like my late teens, like before, um, college. And then, you know, I had varying, I feel like I was on every type of birth control at one point or another, like the pills, this was when the patch was still a thing. I did the patch. I did the pills. I did. What else did I do? I feel like I tried, I dabbled in them all. Did you um, ever have an IUD or the shot? That I never did. Mm -hmm. I considered it for a while. Um, and yeah, I think IUDs were sort of coming more into their um, where there were more choices mm -hmm. and they were more, they were having a moment kind of, I would say when I was like out of college, like sort of, um, starting my career, 
I kind of thought about it. And um, by the time I'd really given it serious thought, I was closer to marrying and, and trying to start a family. So I was, nah, um, yeah. I'll just kind of keep dealing with the the pill and kind of be annoying. Why did you switch onto different methods of birth control? Whereas did you have issues with some of them and then you wanted to switch to something else? Yeah. If you can yeah. share anything about that, that you remember like symptoms and things like um, that. You know, I feel like I'm not a huge fan of hormonal birth control. Um, I never was, and I'm definitely not now, but I don't want to knock it because I know it's very cost-effective and it works well and people need it. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, for me personally, I had to find, I really had to find, you know, the formulation of the various um, hormones in the pills. Some worked better for me and some didn't. So I remember some um, made me insane just mood swings out of control mood swings to where I'd be like, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, some of them I've, I've struggled with hormonal acne. So sometimes it would like flare up on a certain pill. Sometimes on a pill, it would be the opposite. It would be like, I just have like porcelain skin and it's amazing. So I'd be like, maybe we should be here. Um, so it's kind always, of trying to adjust. Yeah. Did you, were you able to connect what you were experiencing to birth control or did somebody else help you identify that? Usually I could, because in the time it sort of took for these symptoms to manifest, um, I would kind of get so frustrated and want to change it. Um, and so I kind of knew that that was sort of the only real variable that was usually going on with, with me, you know, there weren't, it wasn't like I was doing, you know, other sort of dietary changes or sleep changes or anything that would kind of be wreaking havoc other than, you know, taking, taking these hormones, which were not from my body. They were, you know, all synthetic. And, um, so I kind of was able to, and, and usually it would be, um, something like I'd be sort of coasting along on like a good one or one that worked well for me. And then like my insurance would change or there would be some upset or it, I don't know, uh, like when I switched from the originally from the patch to the pill, like some, some small sort of, um, you know, piece of the formulation would, would get disturbed. And then I would sort of realize, okay, well, is, is this a better change or is this a worse change? And if it's worse now, we sort of have to like a little bit go back to the drawing board. And, um, you know, so I think at one point I wanted to try again, this was when the beginning of my college experience was more when the, um, sort of like the low dose pills were kind of coming into vogue. And so I thought, well, that seems like a great idea to like, to, I'd like to take the least amount possible. Um, and I think I tried one of those. And again, just whatever was the combination that was in there, like didn't work for me. Um, and that, you know, sort of upset the apple cart and I kind of had to go back and just try to find, and I don't remember, it sounds like I would, but I can't remember now what would be sort of the right combination of like, the hormones, that was my kind of winning ticket. I don't remember, but um, when I would find a good one, I'd basically, again, I would sort of just kind of ride it out until I was forced to change it for some reason. But, um, you know, when I was, when you were like a poor, like college student, it's like, I'm on my parents' insurance. Now I'm on no insurance. Now I just started a new job. So I have, so it was kind of shuffled through a couple different, but that that's mostly why. Yeah. I mean, another reason why our medical system is so broken. It's like not at all based on what's actually best for the patient. It's just kind of like, yeah, 
who's in cahoots with who is yep. what people are given. Exactly. Who they, yeah, who they have associations with and what can be the cheapest. And yeah, it's... total BS. Um, and just to throw it out there, the fertility awareness method is free, <laughs> free. Um, but that's just a, a PSA for another day. So how <laughs> long were you on birth control total? I would say a little over 10 years. Okay. And then from there, you, when you stopped taking it, your intention was, okay, I'm ready to get pregnant right now. Yes. And, and so when you stopped taking birth control, did you, were you aware of times of your cycle that you could get pregnant and times that you couldn't, or were you just kind of like, okay, going to stop the pill and then try to have sex and we'll get pregnant from there? Um, I would say for the first couple of months. I was definitely um, the, I'll just come off the pill and we'll have sex and then we'll get pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, I was only in that world for, again, the first kind of like three months or so. I am not a very like chill person. So <laughs> I sort of had already started like some deep dive Googling, but, you know, um, coming from a place where I think kind of a lot of us do when we are ready to start trying to get pregnant, um, where you sort of, I don't know. I, I, I feel like maybe I didn't know a lot and that I was assuming certain things. Um, and I don't think I knew about, um, specifically about a fertile window. I don't think I knew how long the egg lived, how long the sperm lives, how long you actually have the exact, you know, when that happens and how it corresponds to when you're going to begin having your period. I was not very educated about that at all. Again, for the first couple of months, luckily again, it's my, um, it's kind of my, uh, I love like researching and stuff. So I sort of immediately was suddenly like knee deep in all this, um, you know, all these TTC boards and all the acronyms and figuring stuff out. And I did eventually start using, um, you know, predictor kits to kind of see when I was going to ovulate. And, um, it was, tricky because I actually didn't, I went off the pill and, you know, now I hear that this is a very common experience, but at the time I hadn't heard of this and I, I went off the pill and didn't get a period for four months, four and a half months. And so I'm like, well, this is really frustrating because I'm trying to get pregnant. <laughs> so if I'm not ovulating, um, this is not, this is not going to happen. Um, and so I kind of went banging on the door of my OBGYN and and they were like, you know, here, take some progesterone and see if you can get um, yourself going again. And so I did. And then I went another couple of months. Um, I want to say, yeah, maybe the first time was three months without a period. Then I took some progesterone and I did get a, a weird bleed. And then it was another month and a half or so. Um and I was so mad and I was ready to call and just like read them the riot act. And, um, they would always tell me like, you know, every, basically when you're not ovulating, it's like every week, you know, take a pregnancy test. And if it's negative, wait another week. And oh, like, I remember. So it was basically, yeah. yeah. So that was a really fun time of taking a test, like every seven days, just, just to see. I just want to rewind to the progesterone thing. So 
I think what you're talking about is the progesterone challenge where they give you progesterone for a period of time and then Mm -hmm. you stop taking it. And so the, basically what that's doing is maturing your endometrial lining and that, which is what happens after ovulation naturally, then your body produces progesterone naturally, and then it goes down before your period. So the withdrawal stopping, when you stop taking that medication, that's what forces your body to bleed. And I've done that myself a few times. And they always would say to me, like, this will kickstart your period kind of thing. And it never has. I have no idea if they really (laughs) believe that's the case. But it sounds like to me, it didn't do that for you either, because you still kept not having your period. Anyway, I was just thinking about it. And there's, there's this class that I'm taking right now that it's it's like part Chinese medicine and part Western medicine. And the woman that's teaching about the Western medicine stuff is an OBGYN. And she shared about this in the class about the progesterone challenge and kind of like the basics about it for people that aren't familiar with it. And I was just kind of like, she's teaching this too. Like I, I, so anyway, it was just popped into my head. Like I need to ask her about that, like where that comes from, like why giving your body synthetic hormones, like why would that regulate your cycle, usually what they want to do is do that. And then once your body bleeds, then they put you on birth control to force your body to keep bleeding, but that doesn't do anything for your natural hormones. But anyway, it sounds like for you, you were on birth control and there's, I think a lot of people refer to it as like post pill syndrome or post pill amenorrhea or whatever. It sounds like that's what you experienced. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from there you were able to get your cycle back. So that was a little bit of a tangent. So please keep going with your, your story as well. You're exactly right. It was, um, that's exactly, yes, that's exactly what they were doing. So they were like, just take this progesterone. I think I took it for short, very short period of time, Mm a couple of days. And then you come off the first withdrawal bleed was again, like I said, it was really weird. It was not I was like, is this, is this it? Cause it was kind of, it was sort of like a black sludge. I was like, I feel like this is not, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like this is not what's supposed to be happening. Um, and then, um, yeah. So it was whatever, I think whatever, I'm, I'm not sure, I guess if taking that original progesterone did ultimately something happened because um, when I was on, you know, having another, you know, I'm pushing 45 days with, you know, taking, taking these strips, taking the pregnancy tests, um, nothing's happening. And I, I, it was a Sunday and I was like, the second those doors open Monday, I'm going to call them and give them a piece of my mind. And I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. I don't know when I ovulated. So you never got a positive OPK reading but I wasn't doing it like every single day. Okay. And you weren't observing cervical mucus or doing basal body temperature at that time. I was temping. Okay. Um, But you never wasn't doing the cervical mucus and, or the, um, positioning I was temping. Um, it was both of my charts from when nothing, when truly nothing was happening. And then from when apparently something happened were, not decipherable to my eye, my very uneducated eye at that time. They Looking at it now, do, can you see that you did ovulate? I can't, I really can't pinpoint it. I really can't. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find an old copy and show well, you. I would love to know. see it because I because love I'm these funny. like anomaly type things. 
It's really yes. interesting. Yeah, I was like, when the heck? So then I'm yeah. trying to figure out, like, well, am I eight, 11, or 14 days pregnant? Because it was from, I was like, okay, well, I know when I last took a test. And I know when we could have had sex. So like some way I can kind of narrow it down, but I was really, so then going to my first, um, you know, couple appointments was very interesting. Cause I was like, I don't know what they're going to tell me about. This was actually back when we don't, I don't think we have them anymore. I don't think they're allowed for some reason, but do you remember when they had, actually, they still have them, I think internationally, but clear blue came out with the um, weeks estimator. So you could take a test and it would say, um, one oh, to I've two never weeks heard pregnant. of that. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah, we don't. I Why don't are they not allowed that. anymore? They were inaccurate, or I heard it's basically because Americans sort of, sort of couldn't be trusted with like <laughs> you're not supposed to basically take that as like the end all be all of what's you know what I mean. You kind of it's just an estimator. You're supposed to you know go and have that verified and stuff. I think it wasn't. I think it, someone probably took them to court and said, oh, I wasn't two, I was three or whatever. Oh my God, people are so so obnoxious. I mean, it doesn't sound like, I agree that you shouldn't rely on something like that. You should also- Because it was just your levels, right? They're trying to- They're trying to- Measure your age. What's your levels and then lump you into a category of where we think. It could be, of course, it could be wildly different between like people and, um, but so that was back then. So I think it said- so it was still kind of, I was still kind of getting, I think one to two, whatever was like the earliest one. So, um, yeah, you can't find them. I remember when I finally was, was, um, pregnant with my second, I was like trying to run and find one of those and I couldn't, and I had to Google it. And then the internet was like, yeah, we were not allowed to have them anymore. Americans <laughs> like, are too oh. dumb. <laughs> I, was like, I wonder if I can like eBay them from somewhere else, but, um, I let it go. But anyway, yeah. yeah so apparently, yes, we cannot be trusted with that level of, I don't know. Yeah, so now we get the ones that are like, is it a line? Is it not a line? Is it like, or like, does it say pregnant, not pregnant? <laughs> yes, we need that like level of simplicity here. Yes, well, and they gave us that they obliged. So now there are yeah. plenty of those that are just like, yeah, totally. They'll, they'll really tell you how it is. But, um, yeah. but yeah, where were we? <laughs> so, anyways, you you found out that you were pregnant, and I imagine yes. that at some point you probably went and got an ultrasound and a dating scan and all of that. So, and if there's anything that you want to share about that pregnancy, like, you know, I just love for women to share about their pregnancies. If there's anything that stands out to you about that experience of things that you didn't expect or things that you found really challenging or really enjoyed, yeah, anything like that. He, um, that was my first son who's now seven, which is crazy, but, um, no, that one was, I was, I was nervous because in my over anxious mind, I'm thinking now I don't know anything about, like, I, I just, I didn't have, I wasn't having like a pretty, um, sophisticated, uh, you know, predictable cycle, um, I, it, it didn't seem like that my body was really like health, healthy and moving through the phases that it was supposed to be, obviously, you know, I had to take meds and then that, that didn't even really work. And somewhere in there, I dropped an egg. And, and so I was concerned because I was like, I don't know, is this pregnancy going to be healthy? Because I just felt like my body was not in an optimal, um, like position right before that. So I was really nervous about that for the first couple of weeks, um, and uh luckily it turned out fine it was a he was a very um textbook pregnancy I was very 
um, you know, I had, I had, I don't want to say morning sickness because we all know it's, it's all day. Um, mm-hmm. I was nauseous in the beginning, in the first trimester is, is I guess all I would really say. And then, um, you know, I didn't really have many, you know, overwhelming, um, you know, symptoms that, that really made me feel really terrible. I was also, I did luckily, aside from what was going on internally with my cycle, I, at that time, um, was very healthy. Like we, I, I say we, I mean, me and my husband, we didn't have kids, so we had plenty of time. Um, and we lived in a, um, apartment building with a gym. So we were like very fit. And I think that helped because I, I didn't have a lot of the, um, the symptoms that can make you just feel, feel really bad. I mean, that can happen to fit people too. Also, obviously, um, it's it kind of, I don't know. I haven't found a rhyme or reason why some people get certain symptoms or whatever, but, um, yeah, I mean, I do think I, that I think lifestyle does make a difference. There's definitely people that will say like, it doesn't matter. And I think there's a, a lot of variables in there, but I do think that taking good care of yourself, eating well and moving your body in ways that feel good does, improve your chances of having a a less, um, challenging pregnancy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially as like the, there's certain things that, you know, I think all of us are kind of moving, obviously, I think it's clear that we're sort of all kind of moving the dial on when we're having kids, like a little later in life. Mm -hmm. So even 30 biologically, is kind of getting up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I How old think were I'm you like, when you got pregnant with your son? I was 29, I guess. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, and then I had him, I had my 30th birthday in July and then he was born in September. Awesome. So I can, he's nice and easy. I can remember how old we are because we're <laughs> 30 and zero <laughs> and then move Love on it. from there. Um, okay. And then, so what was the labor process like? Was there any thing around, you know, medical providers being supportive or not, or anything that you'd like to share about that labor and birthing process of him? It was generally pretty good. Um, I, it was basically what I expected. It was a hospital birth. Um, but I, that had been planned by me very specifically. I was, I wanted that for my first, again, I, I'm, I have a tendency towards anxiety. Um, and I sort of wanted to get the lay of the land, if you will, with my first birth. And then if I wanted to kind of make changes to that, that was something I was willing to do with hopefully a later, a later birth. Um, but for the first one, I kind of wanted the kind of textbook straightforward. Um, I, and I wanted to get the epidural and I did, um, but I do remember, um, I was doing pretty well laboring at home. And so I kind of, um, just like chilled there for a while. And by the time I got to the hospital, I was already, I think six centimeters. And in retrospect, I kind of wish I would have just let it ride. It was the morning. I think we got there at nine or so. And I'd been in labor since probably four 30. Um, and it was, I mean, it was hurting when I got to the hospital, it was pain, pain. The contractions were, you know, I was, I was feeling it, but, um, I did get the epidural again. I sort of just, I wanted to, I wanted to just get a sense of how it was going to be this first time. I thought I would have future opportunities if I wanted to, to sort of take that knowledge that I gained from the first time around and, and 
make changes. And um, yeah, I, it didn't work out that way as we'll probably get into, but um, you know, I do kind of wish, I wonder what would happen. I think it would have gone a lot faster if I would have not gotten an epidural when I got there. And um, did I you get it I, right away when you got there? Um, I would say it was probably maybe like an hour and a half or two hours, but mm -hmm. basically like once they are done, you know, with all your fiddling around getting you in there yeah all the stuff you have to sign and all that um and then you know check you and say okay you're like six and you know I don't know I think it was it was going it was going pretty well it was going pretty swiftly again it hurt but I wasn't like you know I I, I think hindsight is 2020 um but um I I kind of wonder what would happen but again it was it was really fine the um the doctors and the nurses I had like completely um you know it it all kind of went off without much of a hitch I had a little bit of a bleed um and he you know he had the cord around these are all pretty like standard <laughs> um but yeah he was height weight great um everything yeah like I said he kind of his uh pregnancy was kind of textbook the birth was kind of textbook and um and you didn't have to be induced or anything mm -mm. Nope. so were you like exactly 40 weeks when you went into labor I was over. I was yeah. over. So they were getting pretty mad. They, <laughs> I was uh, 41 and a half. Mm -hmm. And actually the, the night before we got no sleep because we kept, um, everyone gets very tense when you're over 40 weeks, um, medically. And, but since we didn't really, we had that ambiguity, ambiguity about when mm -hmm. I even got pregnant, I was like, are we going to hold hard and fast to this due date? Because we don't really know. I'm not someone who, you know, it, it was IVF where we know exactly when, or it was even like, you know, coming off the pill and knowing exactly. It's like, we, there was, it felt to me like there was wiggle room. So like, let's just, and also, you know, they wanted to go ahead. No, I want to hear what you're going to say. Well, also <laughs> the average gestation for a first time mom is 41 and a half weeks. And my daughter, who I only have one child, but was born at 41 and a half weeks. And I actually do know my conception date within a day or two, because I know when my ovulation happened and I know that I had sex like a couple times prior to that. So I don't know like if it was the 12th or the 14th kind of thing, but it's within a couple Close, day yeah. window. So I knew that my dating was like very accurate and she was born at 41 and a half weeks. And he was born at, I mean, I know so many first time moms that go. And so I don't know why they get so like up in arms about like going past 40 weeks. It's just, it's not an expiration date. It's like a, an approximation that can be either like two weeks before or two weeks after there's really not like an exact, and this is another American, like we yeah. want everything to be like the exact right time, like mm -hmm. technology, everything's got to be, you know, exactly precise and whatever. And that's not how human bodies, bodies work. work. So <laughs> anyway, another tangent, but please continue with what you were sharing. If you can remember before I interrupted you. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I was just like, why it, it, there was just all of a sudden we had 40 weeks and it was like, everything was red alert and we have to get dragged in for these, you know, NSTs all the time. And he was fine. I was like, if he's fine, can we please just let it ride? And they kept saying, well, we're going to induce you like kind of like, and that I did really want to avoid. 
um, again, everyone's like journey is different, but I had been researching and reading a lot. Like you start going down the induction road often that can lead to other interventions. And I did want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that made me nervous. I wasn't, I wasn't really comfortable with that. And so, um, a couple different times they had basically tried to induce me. I think I blew them off like three times. And then finally they were like, okay, you're going to be 42 weeks. And then we like have to take this baby. So we're scheduling you for an induction, um, Friday morning. And like, you can't blow us off. Like you have to come. <laughs> and I was like, okay, but I really didn't want to. And this was Wednesday night. And luckily Wednesday night into Thursday is when I went into labor and he was born Thursday night. So I did not have to go to the Friday morning induction, but only by like the skin of our teeth. Well, um, and imagine like for, for another person, like creating that much stress and anxiety around like, you got to get it done or else kind of thing. Yeah. Like your body's not going to feel safe to go into labor. Then you're going to have to go into the induction process, still not feeling safe. And in order for your body to go through the full process of labor and open up, you really need to be in, you know, somewhat of a relaxed state. So anyway, yeah, that's why the whole cascade of interventions happens. Okay. We're definitely getting that as, um, you know, like, well, we're going to have to induce you. And I was like, why does it feel like you're like threatening me right now? (laughs) But, um, you know, and I, I liked them and they were, I liked my doctor and stuff, but you know, yeah, it's like, it's an American thing. They want everything. They would love for everyone to be a scheduled C-section, frankly, because they can, that's scheduled and timed and clockwork and it's efficient Mm -hmm. that's not how bodies work that's not how babies work and they took him out and they were like oh he doesn't look like he's overdue and I was like because he's not overdue he's fine Mm -hmm. so it was much ado about nothing um yeah yeah and he was it was an adjustment I think going from zero to one babies is probably the hardest adjustment not that I've had experience going from, let's say, like six to seven or something, but I think going from none to any. I the, guess. What I've heard the most is if people either have the hardest time with zero to one or one to two. Really? I only have one. So I don't know. But yeah, that like once you get into the six or seven, it's kind of just like, yeah. You're like, you already know what you're doing so well that, yeah, I I don't know, but. I mean, you've had a lot of practice by then, so I can't imagine you (laughs) are flustered by anything at that point. Totally. Yeah. I can see it. Rolling with the punches. Um, Okay. But you, I don't remember if you mentioned it in the pre-chat or during the episode, but you mentioned at some point that you struggled with postpartum anxiety. So it sounds like that was this transition from you know, not being a mom to being a mom. So if there's anything that you can share about your postpartum experience. Um, yeah, yeah well, I think emotional. I touched on it. Um, I think I touched on it a couple of times and, you know, like I, I, I refer to myself as anxious and, and, and like, I'm just going to call it what it is. Like I have anxiety and I shouldn't shy away from saying that because plenty of people have anxiety. And I had, this had really not been diagnosed or addressed or accommodated at all in my life before having a baby. And so for me going through this huge transition, like arguably the biggest transition of my life with basically raging undiagnosed anxiety anyway, 
um, was not a healthy setup. Um, and I, yes, I, that was a big, um, like anxiety trigger, obviously. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't just, I just wasn't thinking of it in those terms because I hadn't like now I'm just in a different place where it's like, okay, I know I have anxiety and it's, I'm deal I'm working on it and I'm, and I'm dealing with it. But at the time I sort of, I didn't. And, and so anyway, it was, um, it was very, um, troubling. I, this was now seven years ago and postpartum anxiety wasn't something that was really, um, I, I didn't know it existed. I had never heard it. I had heard of postpartum depression and they give you that screener, which is a whole other insane thing. Like just have a new mom walk in and like answer a couple questions, multiple choice questions. And then like, you're asking the person who you're trying to determine if they have a problem to tell you if they have a problem. I mean, it's, it's not a good way. And anyway, I passed the, the PPD screener because I didn't have PPD. But my blood pressure was through the roof. I was not sleeping. I was eating, but I was I was well under my pre-pregnancy weight, like weeks after having this child. Like I could eat. I remember I, I when I had time, I was like I would house food, but it just wouldn't because I was my heart was thumping out of my chest. I just wasn't. I was, my body thought I was like exercising all day, every day because of how hard were you like, my systems were working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so it was kind of a, a bummer, <laughs> a bummer. I feel like I, there should be a better phrase, but it wasn't like, I was not red flagged as someone who needed to sort of be looked in on. And I think I probably should have been, um, just from me, I don't think it was, you know, that again, it wasn't that serious postpartum depression and the postpartum psychosis where you're really going to go do something. But, um, I mean, there was a time I was like driving down the road and sobbing hysterically and like, I should never come back. I should just keep driving. Like, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't healthy for me. I wasn't like a danger, um, to myself or to anyone else, but I was not okay. Like I needed to sleep. I needed to get out of this, um, hypervigilance, you know, state that I was in. And, um, I just didn't, I wasn't, I just kind of had to wait for it to sort of simmer down on its own as opposed to having some like assistance with that, which I don't know how they act on people who they think of PPA now or support that's provided. I hope there's like some infrastructure for that, but, um, it was like, it was a tricky time. So what was the sort of like structure of your home life at that time? Like, did your husband go back to work right away? Did he have any time off? Did you have any family, friends stay with you? Slash, is there anything else? Yeah, like maybe you would have done differently, but it's so, it is hard in those moments when you're experiencing it of just of like being able to know that there's a problem. So I'm, yeah, I'm just asking you in retrospect upon further reflection, like, are there things that maybe you would suggest for somebody else to have in place to, you know, potentially avoid something like that? Um, 
I'm not sure that's a really good question. And I would hope that there would be. I was very, I was very, and I think it was part of the anxiety, which makes it even a more difficult hurdle to overcome. But I, I didn't really want people to come help. I didn't want people to hold my baby. I wanted to hold my baby. You know what I mean? I didn't want to relinquish any Mm -hmm. of that. And I think that's part of being so again, like just, um, in this sort of, um, fight or flight mode constantly. It's like, I didn't, I needed help, but I was, my anxiety was making me do the opposite of that. It was making me take everything on myself and Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to just wake up all night and just check if he's breathing. And I'm going to like, I don't want to be in the other room. I don't want you to come over so I can shower. Like, I just want to hold it. So it was a little, it's hard. It's hard to get through, but I would say maybe if you, and again, like you said, it's, it's also, you know, very often hard to know when you're in it, that you're in it. I mean, I would say I definitely didn't feel normal. Like I was definitely like, I feel like I'm not having the time that I thought I would have, or that it kind of was like presented to me that this would be, it just feels really not good. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to be kind of having like a nice, like baby glow and just, you know, butterflies. And it was, uh, it was not like that. Um, but yeah, if you can have, if you can have people support you sort of around the peripheral, even if you don't want to let go of your baby and you don't want to, um, you know, go have a nap while someone looks after your baby or whatever, you know, if people can sort of make sure that you're eating, you know, bring food over that kind of thing. Um, I think even just like hanging out with you, like people coming over while you hold your own baby mm-hmm. and they just like mm-hmm. come and talk to you. Yes. Like and hearing that. stories, like I wish other, I felt even though my husband was, did get to take a paternity leave. Like he had a good chunk of time off and we actually moved next door in, in with my parents slash kind of next door. They have like two houses that about each other. Um, so there were people around, but I felt very isolated in the sense that I didn't have a lot of like girlfriends who had had kids yet. And I hadn't, it just, again, it's something felt off. Like I just was like, it's not, I feel like it's not supposed to feel this way. So hearing from people who were like, oh no, that like, it's this range of things. And like, I, I did sort of feel like this, like would have helped a lot too, because I just felt very, um, isolated in my, um, in how I was kind of dealing with it, which, which added like that I'm like doing it wrong. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And now, um, that's a whole other, you know, thing that you're kind of beating yourself up for. And so, and even, um, through the night too, like if you happen to have friends, if you do happen to get pregnant and have babies around the same time as people, um, I remember I felt really, um, isolated at night when you're up doing when, when even like the normal people around you get to go to bed, but you're up nursing, you know, that was tough for me. Mm -hmm. So if you do have people, I'm not saying text all your friends at like 4 (laughs) a.m. (laughs) but if you happen to know other people who might be up, um, you know, I think that that could have maybe helped me not feel like so lonely in those, um, you know, nighttime hours. Cause that was tricky too. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I am hoping that there's more, you know, more formal things in place now that there's more, um, 
that people know like it's it's not ppd or nothing like there's kind there is a spectrum of things that you could be um going through and totally i mean beyond any kind of diagnosis that the postpartum phase is really hard and i i think it kind of depends on so many factors one of which is like the baby that you have of course mm-hmm. you know some babies are more or less challenging and yeah, how much support you have or that you want. I can really relate that I would feel really frustrated. It actually still kind of happens. Like sometimes I'm like, I need more help. And then somebody wants to help. And I'm like, no, I need to do it. (laughs) So, I mean, I see stuff on, on Instagram about that with like cleaning and stuff. It's like (laughs) people trying to help you. And then you're like, no, 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 no. You didn't do it right or whatever. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, it's just one of the challenges I think of, of mothering, of, you know, trying to let go when you can, but when they're so tiny and vulnerable, it's, it's like visceral, it's biological inside of you of just like, get away from my baby, you know, (laughs) kind of thing um, that I'm sure not everybody experiences, but yeah. And I think it's hard. I don't know that that would have happened on a second or third or fourth or sixth or seventh child, I think that being so new, the entire thing being new mm-hmm. um, was really, it's just such an insane learning curve. And um, yeah, I mean, stuff that I was getting stressed out about at the time, like they, you know, he, we were trying to breastfeed. So he did the perfectly normal and natural thing, which again, I wasn't aware of at the time, but that they lose. And actually all babies do this, like lose some of their birth weight. And Mm -hmm. they put the fear of God into me, into the hospital that he was like, not okay. Mm -hmm. And so that made me, you know, that just adds to the stress and the um, anxiety of the entire situation. And now it's like, now, now my, my baby is not is starving you know what I mean like is is wasting away and um I put a lot of pressure you know it's just that's also not a mindset to give a new a brand new mother who's trying to get breastfeeding established and um yeah it was just it was just so many new everything and I, I think I mean we had some some bad stuff happened with number two and I didn't slip into that anxiety place so that I just I think it was um just the sheer newness of everything and having to um figure it out and then from there luckily it was okay (laughs) yeah yeah I I mean I have limited experience because I only have the one but yeah it's a very challenging time So yeah, let's transition into talking about when you're ready to conceive your second baby and what happened there. Yeah, well, we start, so we started trying and I've never was on birth control in between um, because I was nursing him and, and not having, um, you know, not, not ovulating for a really long time, not having a flow, which I think is more, you know, he was, um, we were exclusively breastfeeding for a while and it was, um, I don't think I got my flow back till he was over a year old. I mean, 13 or 15 months somewhere in there. Um, and I think we started trying, uh, right around there, basically. I think he was about, um, a year and a half and, um, we started trying and then we moved houses and, um, we moved to a different state 
and we were coming up on the year and a half mark. And I was like, this is not <laughs> normal. Like what's, what is happening? Um, I, we just were, I mean, not even a whisper of anything going on at all. Um, as, as far as, I mean, a, a positive pregnancy test. I mean, I was, I was definitely, um, you know, per the strips I was ovulating, um, we didn't have any noticeable problems to us as untrained, you know, just people, myself and my husband. Um, and then, you know, we kind of, I got up the, uh, you know, gumption to kind of go speak with an RE and they did their sort of preliminary workup. And there was, once again, there was nothing wrong to them either. So we were, you know, everything, this is normal and that's normal and this looks good and that looks beautiful. And I was like, I'm going to punch someone in the face because- They checked both of you? Mm-hmm. Okay. And nothing, there was nothing to be found. And so we were um, given the extremely helpful diagnosis of unexplained infertility, mm-hmm. unexplained secondary infertility. Now, was this going to be a problem back in time before my first? And we just had all that weirdness and- he was the the outlier that we didn't realize at the time or was is this the outlier situation where now something my body's been through this but now something's you know off or something different is is happening um you know I was a little bit older I wasn't that much older I was two or three years older um you know I was still on the right side of 35 um so we you know kind of started down that um, you know, process of, um, ART, we did a a couple IUIs, we did medicated, non-medicated again, nothing, just nothing. Um, and then finally we went to a full-blown IVF cycle. Um, that was challenging. I think we don't talk about that enough. I think, um, I think even women going through it, myself included, um, are, are at that point so desperate to just have another resource that they can try when so many other things have failed that it ultimately is seen, especially if it works as a positive. And I'm not saying IVF is not a positive, but I am saying that it takes a huge toll on people going through it. And that's sort of not, um, talked about a lot. I mean, for me, there are still, there are still things from that first IVF cycle that like haunt me. Like I just getting that massive box of, um, things to stick yourself with and just being like, I am not a nurse. Like I, how am I expected to do this? Did you do it yourself or did you have your husband? You did? I did not want to do it. He would have been fine doing it, but he was annoying me. I I can't even remember now who I was asking about that, if it was a client or if it was on a podcast, but I I would have had, I'm an acupuncturist. I stick needles in people for a living. And I think I would have a hard time doing, because they're hypodermic needles, which is different. And I think probably more painful. I've seen the bruises that some of them will leave on people that I've worked with. So, yeah, so that's very brave of you that you're able to do it yourself. And yeah, something I think a lot of people, it's just like, oh, I did IVF and I got pregnant, la-di-da. It's like, you don't, maybe people don't always have an opportunity to share about the whole experience. So yeah, yeah. anything else that stands out to you um, 
about that process? Um, it was just tough. And again, this is, this is kind of some, some of it's on me because we were playing, we were playing our cards very close to our chest. There were not a lot of people who knew what was going on. I'm talking even our parents didn't know what was going on. So I didn't have a lot of support because nobody knew how can they support me when I'm keeping it to myself. So, um, you know, you have to do what you're comfortable with. And I just wasn't comfortable opening up about it at that point. Um, and, um, it was hard again, that it was very, now I feel like I'm going through this all on my own. I don't know what I'm doing. I just sort of feel in over my head. And yeah, I think it's such, I'm, I'm so thankful that IVF exists and that people who are able to do it can do it and have this whole other opportunity to, um, to make this work for them. But I think it's, it's very, very stressful. I mean, even just down to the timing of things and making appointments, it's doing a cycle of IVF is like truly like having a part-time job Mm -hmm. of managing who has to be where, when the time you have to take out of your regular schedule, whatever you're doing, working or what have you, it's a very big drain. It's a mental drain. It's a physical drain. It's an emotional drain. It is not a sure thing. Plenty of people out there are still under the assumption that it is a silver bullet to getting a baby. It is not. It is very often an extremely expensive shot in the dark um, that you that is not in any way a guarantee. Um, and that's if people who haven't been through it, that's sometimes um, hard to explain. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, it's not working. And even think about it of themselves or of people that they know and love. Oh, well, you know, you could try IVF. Yeah, you could try it if you're fortunate enough to have insurance for it or if you're able to pay for it somehow. Sure, you could try it. Um, But that doesn't mean you're going to get a baby just Mm because you can try IVF. Um, So that was just, again, sort of, I think it's, our inclination, again, especially if it works to sort of blow right past all that came before and just be thrilled that it did work and that you, you did get this thing that you so desired. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that it's just, you go through a lot, you put your body through a lot, you put your heart through a lot. And, um, I, I just, I don't think we talk about that part enough. Especially there's people who do this, there's people who do like 10 IVF cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you get way better at the shots and you don't care about the shots anymore. And you could do them with your eyes closed. And, um, maybe you start opening up to people and, and talking about it and being really open and out there. But again, it's still, you're still, it's a lot to go through. And yeah. I think we sort of take it almost like take it for granted now because it is this great resource, but um, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, and I, it, I think we were talking about this before, you know, I'm so like in this world of like fertility and assisted reproductive technology and things like that, that I've seen personally, I've worked with women that have been through multiple rounds and all sorts of different things and medications and IUIs and IVF and all sorts of things. And so to me, it's like very apparent of like how much of a, and this like part-time job that you just described, I've heard a lot of people describe it that way. And I, yeah, I think from the outside, if you're somebody like me, for example, I got pregnant and I 
I didn't have to do anything other than like have a fun sex time once, you know, sort of thing. And I think if that's people's experience of getting pregnant, it can be really hard to, yeah, like know what to say, basically, you know, they, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, well, you can't get pregnant. Have you tried this other thing? You know, like they don't know the ins and outs of like the shots and the appointments and the stress of it not working potentially and having to do it again and going into debt and all these kinds of things that you don't think about unless you're in it. So so anyways, it's a huge topic. It's huge. And it's a huge, I mean, it changes your whole, um, it changes almost every single way that you would react to a pregnancy. I mean, you can't, there's no spontaneity. There is little to no romance. There's no, you know what I mean? It's not going to be like, oh, we, you know, had, we were like, we're so in love and we had such a romantic time on our anniversary weekend. And then we conceived you. It's like, no, no, we were all in a freezing cold, you know, lab and I was in stirrups, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, sweet about it. And there's no, um, getting to surprise anybody. There's, it's the op- literal opposite of surprise. It's like, we have this down to the second when, <laughs> and if, you know, conception happened and it just, it's a radically different way. Um, to do this gigantic like life milestone and um there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are different and sometimes it's not a difference that you wanted to go through mm-hmm. so yeah so then you're doing this IVF cycle and all the mm-hmm. shots and all the appointments and did you conceive on the first round Luckily I did. We only ended up with two embryos, which is not great. Um, I mean, it's, it's also, you know, you could end up with eight embryos and not get pregnant. You could end up with one and get pregnant. So it's a very, it's very much, um, it's kind of playing the odds. Um, when you're doing IVF, you just kind of don't really know. We didn't get them tested. The embryos tested, um, because again, we were sort of still on the right side of 35. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something that anyone felt strongly about. Um, so our, of our two embryos, the first one we transferred and, um, I was pregnant for maybe a day and a half. That one was a very, it was a chemical. It was a really early loss, but I was frankly thrilled that that was the first and only time in, in at that point, two and a half years that we had seen a positive pregnancy test. So I was like over the moon, like something happened, something happened. There was a response of some kind and, um, I was encouraged, but we were now on the last <laughs> of two, only two, but the last, um, embryo. And so that's very, that is stressful too. Cause then you're like, well, what if this one doesn't work? And now I have to go back to the drawing board and all this stuff. So thankfully that had a bit of a also dicey beginning. My um, numbers were very low and there was a lot of concern that that was going to be another chemical. But um, luckily um, we sort of made it through over that hump and um, I was pregnant with my now three-year-old. Amazing. So yeah, is he so- a COVID baby? Pre-COVID. He's technically not a COVID baby. <laughs> However... As we may touch on, he did do a long NICU stay. We brought him home on February 18th. 
of 2020. 2020. And, you know, what, two and a half weeks later, we're we're in um, the tri-state area. So, you know, we were the first, maybe two weeks later, what everything was locked down. So I was like, (laughs) obviously no one was expecting this, but I was like, what is happening? Like, I'm finally trying to... (laughs) I'm finally trying to like have everything go back to normal around here and like no we just are going gonna go right into lockdown a full-blown um global pandemic I guess so, good times so I kind of throw him in I'm like he's kind of a COVID baby because for yeah. all intents and purposes he was never you know he also wasn't doing these developmental things that the COVID you know going out going to the grocery store you know going to classes or anything any kind of enrichment mm-hmm. so he basically was <laughs> right. Totally. So he, so tell us about that pregnancy. Was it pretty straightforward? It was not, it was the opposite of straightforward. <laughs> um, like I said, he, um, started, um, very low, um, beta numbers and they weren't sort of rising appropriately. And they even were kind of like, Oh, just, you know, go off your meds and we'll just sort of let this play out. And, not positive um about the situation I was like you know what my numbers went up though they didn't go down so I'm just gonna stay on my meds so (laughs) I kept doing those horrible progesterone injections those are the ones that you see on all your clients that are um those are really the um awful ones they Mm -hmm. just I mean they hurt at the time they hurt after oh they're so unpleasant but I was like you know my numbers rose though. So I'm just going to see what happens. And then, um, you know, at my third blood draw, the numbers had risen. They were still low, but the, the rise had been appropriate. So, um, we were kind of like, okay, this is probably fine. And then, um, around eight or nine weeks, they were like, mm, this, like the gestational sac is too small. I was like, okay, I don't really know what that means. And they were like, well, we'll just sort of keep They'd been ultrasounding me like basically every week at that point, just to kind of make sure, cause they were worried about those numbers. They kept kind of doing that. We made it to 12 weeks. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, this is, this is it, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're okay now. Like, so this is fine. And, and they seemed, everyone seemed very encouraged. We kind of had like got, gotten over those issues. Um, and then it was, it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> I swear I'm not joking from about 12 weeks. Um, until 18 weeks, that window was extremely fine and normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the middle of the night, um, at 18 weeks, my water broke in bed, uh, at two 30 or three in the morning. Um, and my water never broke with my first or, or rather prior to might have broken. Yeah, exactly. Like during, yeah, I was at the hospital. I'd already had the epidural, so I didn't see it, hear it, feel it. I just wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how it's not, wasn't like in a movie. Like that's how my labor started. Like, oh my God, there's, Mm -hmm. but this one, uh, with him was like out of a movie. If I would have been standing up, I mean, I was, I felt like a popping sensation. It was a gush. I was soaked and I just didn't really understand what was going on because I was like, I, I knew two things. I knew that my water broke, but I also knew that I was only 18 weeks pregnant. And I was like, I don't, I just, I couldn't reconcile that those two things mm-hmm. um and I didn't know it was possible I didn't know if it was bad or how bad it was I assumed it probably wasn't good but I didn't sort of know or understand like the severity of 
of that situation. Um, so I drove myself to the hospital in the middle of the night and, um, they eventually did confirm that my water broke. It wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. I was like, there's as much as I didn't want that to be it, there was nothing else it could have been. Like I, even though it had never happened to me before, I knew, I just knew. Um, and, um, it turns out that that is, is a very bad thing to happen. Um, it is very dangerous and supposedly very rare. Um, and unfortunately we were pre-viable. So usually, unfortunately, when your water breaks that early or really when your water breaks at all, typically it means your body's trying to go into labor very soon in 48 to maybe 72 hours. Um, if that happens when you're pre-viable, that means that there's nothing that they can do for your baby. So they, the literature recommends that if your water breaks, um, at a pre-viability stage before about depends where you are, but roughly 23 weeks, um, that you terminate instantly terminate. And I was like, you guys do not understand (laughs) how much time and money and stress and heartache and longing for this baby that I have put into this. Like, I'm not just going to call it right now in the middle of the night. Um, I mean, because you think they might not make it like, let's just sort of see. And they were still ultrasounding me. He was moving. I could feel him moving. It's harder to feel when you have no fluid, but I could feel him. His heart rate was fine. And I was like, if the worst is going to happen, I understand that. I understand the risks. Um, but I'm not going to take an action here. I'm just going to sort of wait it out and see if I come back to you and one of us is, you know, is really sick because you can get a bad infection, uh, we'll do something. Or if I come back to you and he has already passed in there because it was too stressful, then we'll do something about it. Or if I go into labor, there's going to be nothing to that, you know, we won't be able to stop it and I'll, you know, deal with it. But I wasn't going to choose to end it in the absence of other compelling data, if you will. (laughs) So um, we kind of left and we left the hospital and um, they were absolutely convinced that I would be back in a matter of days um, and have the baby. And it, that sometimes plays out like that. Often I would maybe even say, um, but sometimes you can get lucky. So we muddled through until viability, thank goodness. And then we were able to be admitted to the hospital. And- what does muddling through mean? Like, did you go on bed rest at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, it's, it's so difficult when this happens pre-viably because the doctors won't, the doctors are convinced that there's nothing like that your lost cause in there like i'm not sugarcoating it that was they told me to terminate every week for five weeks in a row because they assume the baby is a lost cause and they're also concerned if you get this infection that can come up once the membranes have ruptured it can come up 
it can infect the baby, it can infect the mother, you can go septic, it can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they want to prioritize, obviously, the mother's well-being mm-hmm. um, as well, which I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad approach, but um, it's just, it's very difficult. It's just a really, um, I mean, obvi- obviously, how do you how do you deal with that? So I was, I felt like a ticking time mom because really it was like, I could literally go into labor any second of any minute of any. And so getting through days was very difficult, but also a huge accomplishment. So every day was like, oh my God. So we just had to hang on. And then if you make it to viability, the hospitals will admit you because then there's at least a chance that with the medication and the technology and the doctors that they have, that they could save the baby if the baby still comes that early, but you're still talking about what could be a very, very, very early, um, you know, 23 or 24 weeker that's really pushing the limits of what we can currently do to save, um, to save babies that, that small. Um, so so it's it's just really um, obviously a very dicey time, even when we got to the hospital, because I'm like, OK, now I'm here and I made it here, but I still don't want to go into labor, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Like I still have to make it even further. Um, so luckily, I did make it. I finally made it to 31 weeks. They will. Um, <laughs> speaking of doctors wanting to do things they will ideally um, schedule you for a 34 week C-section. If you're ruptured, they won't let you go. If you've made it that far, they're not going to let you go any further. They're feeling the baby's in good hands and they'll, so that's, that was the goal, if you will, to make it to 34. We only made it to 31. Um, and he came out and that was very, um, I was not even conscious for that birth. I don't, I didn't really give birth as much as I it was like a scene out of Grey's Anatomy in there um so we were like uh it 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 was a very much an emergency situation and he was out in a matter of minutes which thank goodness but I mean I um I had to be under full general anesthesia I wasn't it what my husband couldn't be there I was not there I didn't know if I was going to wake up to I didn't know what I was going to wake up to what situation um so it was extremely crazy it was just crazy um and luckily when I woke up he was mostly stable in the um NICU and he had to be on a ventilator for a couple of days uh, for about 10 days. Um, he had to be on a certain type of ventilator for 10 days. Then he was on the regular conventional ventilator for another couple of weeks. And, um, all in all, we had a very long, we had a three month respiratory course in the NICU where he had to, um, gain enough lung function to breathe on his own. And, um, thankfully he did. And we, um, we made it home after three months, which was a long time. Um, and then, like I said, it was right in the lead in to COVID. I mean, we didn't know it yet, but uh, <laughs> so it was mid to late February when we brought finally brought him home. He was born in um, he was born on um, November 18th and we took him home on February 18th. And um, 
Yeah, he was um, at that point, basically, if you would have seen him, he was sort of the um, size and appearance of a newborn, <laughs> but he was actually three months old at that point. So, um, so yeah, he was anything but textbook. And I did not get um, a birth experience that I thought I might on maybe my second go around, um, quite the opposite. Um, and uh, yeah, but I think I was more prepared for a lot of things. Thankfully that this was, did not happen the first time around. I sort of shudder to think what, what I, how I would have dealt with it if this would have been my first experience with any baby. Um, so luckily I had a somewhat of some things, um, under my belt as a mother by that point, because it was, um, it was, yeah, it was just like, everything was topsy-turvy and, um, I'm glad that I, in a way there were things that I did already know. And, um, but he, you know, we were just so we were just so thankful. We spent so long not knowing basically from conception to, to the, when he actually was born and even a little bit after, frankly, we did not know if he was going to make it. So we're talking, you know, months and months in this place of not knowing if he was going to make it. So that was, that's hard on your brain. Cause you're trying to like, you love, you love this baby. But at the same time, I was like, I don't, you kind of build like a wall a little bit because it was just such an uncertainty. Um, and the stats were not on our side and, um, it was, so it was definitely a different experience of when your baby is born, just feeling a little bit more disconnected because you, didn't know what to expect this entire time or if you were gonna have this baby um yeah so it was just obviously very different from the first time around yeah well and I it was giving me chills as you were sharing about there were like two opportunities that the medical recommendation was for you to terminate and you persevered or, you know, to stop doing, taking your medication and things like that. And I just think it's such a testament to like mothers knowing what's best for their baby, even if sometimes it goes against medical advice and yeah, like what a scary thing to be confronted with. Like your baby could die or you can die, you know, like now you have to make a choice kind of thing. And I think it would be easy to reflect on like what you would do in that situation, but you really don't know until you're in it, you know? And it's hard. It's hard to be like, you're a doctor who went to school for many, many years to give me this recommendation. Like, who am I to, like, I've never felt crazier than those first couple weeks of being like, they just must think I'm like nuts because <laughs> they, um, you know, but it it's, there's not, the problem is there's actually, this is quite rare, although I think it's more common then maybe the current statistics, I don't know that they're up to date. It's, it's theoretically a less than 1% chance of this happening pre-viability. 
I don't know how much I believe that statistic anymore because I have met other people who this has happened to. And I was like, if it was really that low, how come, you know, I, I don't know that the stats have kept up, but I do know that there's very, very little literature, especially on, on it's called PPROM, um, uh, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes. Um, there's very little literature on it, period. And there's almost nothing in this pre-viability um, stage. So even the doctors, frankly, are kind of at a loss. And so I think that was a little bit what more enabled me to kind of feel that I could go up against them because I was like, I don't think there's no secret stash of knowledge that you have. And I don't because I've read every research paper that there is to read on this that's available on the internet. And there's just, there's not a lot, like there's not a lot. If it would have, if it would have been, um, you know, extremely well-established that this is, you know, this is this and that is that, and we're, it's very definitive and clear. Okay. Maybe, but that doesn't really exist. So I think that kind of helped because I felt that I could like push back a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, it was, I mean, every, as you can probably imagine, you know, every part of it was an extremely difficult choice. I didn't really care about the putting myself in danger. I thought that that was kind of, I don't want to say like a scare tactic, but I felt that that was a bit extreme. Like, I don't know. It's, it's not like you go from, well, I'm not a doctor. I shouldn't say things like this, but I feel they were taking my blood every three days, right? If I was, and they had told me, if you feel pain, if you feel a fever, I, I was very prepared to catch an infection. I don't think that I would have been like, now I'm septic and now it's very dangerous. I think it would have been at least a slightly more gradual um, approach where we would have caught it and I probably would have been fine. But um, that's from my non-medical professional point of view. I just thought that was a little, I was like, that seems like a kind of extreme thing to, of all the outcomes, I don't think, you know, I think it would be much more likely that I would go into labor and we would have that unfortunate um, outcome of of just having a pre-violent baby who w- couldn't make it on its own. Um, but um, but that even that was scary because you want to um, give your baby a shot uh, at succeeding here. But if you do and you call it wrong, you as the parents have have decided to go for it and they don't now now are you in a worse situation than you would have been if you would have just terminated at step one I don't know yeah you can't know yeah so then he's he's here and tell us about anything you want to share about that postpartum phase and then we can transition into the work that you do now. Yeah, um I mean in some ways it was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> As you could probably imagine again. I mean we came home on meds we had to give him um he we had I was, you know, having the hospital grade pump and it was chaos in the world. And, um, but in some ways going through all that shenanigans in the pregnancy, it gives you so much perspective. (laughs) You know, I was like, I was happy as a clam. I was like, my whole family is here in this house, safe and protected. And 
we're all okay. And I don't care if we have to never see anyone. Like, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want people coming over. Um, it was kind of the best thing that could happen to a NICU baby, actually, because you're very terrified of germs the whole time. And that was before a pandemic was going on, especially a respiratory pandemic, because his issue was lungs. Um, and so anyway, you know, we were not inclined to have no one coming out of the NICU, even in the best of times, is probably inclined to have a lot of guests. You're already terrified of germs. So then with this happening, I was like, this is just a whole better, uh, you know, worldwide excuse to just sort of not have to deal with this part of it. And that, you know, worked out and we were, we were home because everything, this was when everything was really shut down. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a little bit more, it actually felt quite safe because we were all home and together. Um, maybe as part of that sort of echoes, like when I didn't want to even let anyone hold my first baby, it's like kind of the same thing. It's like very strictly controlled. We're all here together and, um, there's no sort of outside influences and whatnot, but so, um, you know, there were a lot of things that were crappy about having, um, him home and, and being scared of COVID being one and the medicines we had to give him that really tasted unpleasant and felt like we were torturing him to give him bottles and all this stuff. But he just was like thriving. We actually, I thought maybe it might not work, but we got breastfeeding to take off and he just grew and grew and grew and he was healthy. And, um, yeah, it's just, like I said, it puts a lot of things in perspective. So maybe ordinarily I would have been like, this is terrible. And this is everything sucks. Again, if it would have been my first and it would have been um, maybe not in a pandemic, but it was, um, it, it there were a lot of things I think just kind of rolled off me that might not have uh, ordinarily, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And especially when you've been, you know, so wanting to have this baby enter your life, it's just like, whatever it takes, man, like, yes. I'm just going to roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's such a good point. So I would love for you to share about the work that you do now with with fertility challenges, assisted reproductive technology losses. So maybe we can start with, yeah, I asked you this before, like when people typically seek out your services, like where are they at in their fertility journey and how you support them? And then also, if you notice like some common threads that people need support around in the fertility journey, I know that it's individualized, but yeah, there's anything like common threads that you can think of. Yeah. Um, well, this is, this sort of came, I guess I had been feeling my own feelings and going through my own stuff for quite a while. And like I said, I think a couple of times it felt a little lonely. It felt, um, it did feel a little isolating. And again, people do process it differently. There are people who are, have Instagram accounts about it and have their whole family involved and, and really invested in, in going through infertility and things like this. Um, that's just kind of not how we, we went about it. And so it ended up being very challenging for me. Um, to talk to really anyone about this. And I, I really mean anyone, even friends, even close family people. When I finally did open up, I just found it really, really difficult. And to be 
honest, it was really difficult on my end to even open up. And the vast majority of the time that I did end up doing that, I didn't, I got such a not helpful response to the person who I opened up to that it ultimately made me feel worse. And I was like, I wish I didn't say anything. And that's just not a good place to be in for anybody on really any topic. (laughs) So um, this all kind of started somewhat recently for me, but I was like, you know, what if I was that person (laughs) who people could talk to about this? And I was like, I've been through the ringer on a lot of these things. I've dabbled in all of these experiences. I haven't done IVF as many times as some people, but I've done it. Um, I've done um, many different techniques to try to get pregnant besides IVF. So again, I've really sort of had my finger in a lot of different areas of this. And um, yeah, I just kind of thought one day, what if there was a resource that people could talk to about these things? Hopefully, like I mentioned to you a little bit more in real time as you're going through it. Um, not like me six years later, <laughs> who's still processing some of this stuff. Um, and I was like, you know, is infertility life coaching a thing? And I found out that um, it's sort of a thing. It's starting to become a thing. There's a lot of um, infertility life coaches who focus on almost trying to going back to the place for people where they're still trying to get pregnant and trying to help um, facilitate uh, people to get pregnant. That's not my particular jam. I'm trying to really help coach more again in, in the clearing of the mental health space and not allowing um, the sort of I don't want to say little traumas, but sort of like we kind of talked about now, like the traumas that can stack up along the way, like not talking about how difficult IVF is, for example, Um, not kind of allowing those to go by the wayside of your mental health um, and getting to a place where you are really like isolated and frustrated with your emotions and more trying to be like sort of proactive or at least active, (laughs) actively, um, you know, working through some of this stuff. And frankly, the experiences that I had talking to people who haven't been through things like this were very troubling and difficult for me. And I was like, I think it might work better. I think it might work better if people are able to have someone to talk to being me who it has an insider point of view on this and has heard sort of the things that people can say, knows the triggers that can arise, um, the triggering life events or the triggering um, things that you might see going about your your daily business. Um, And so I just was like, I'm going to get certified to be a life coach and I'm going to basically start trying to help people go through this. So it was, um, it was, it took a little while sort of bobbled around in my mind for a while and I just didn't know if it um would work out and I was like you know if I what's what's the worst that could happen if I try you know what I mean if I if I try um and help a few people through this that would be phenomenal and um yeah so I just kind of was trying to 
squeak myself right into that place where I wish that I had found somebody. Cause again, I wasn't, by the time I was looking for someone for this, I wasn't, I wasn't still looking to try to get pregnant. I wasn't looking for someone to sort of help facilitate like my physical health point of point of view of it. And, um, and help me figure out how to sort of get my fertility back on track and become pregnant. I was, I was really looking for, um, more of a mental health and like processing resource. And as I mentioned to you, I even tried, you know, therapy. I tried, um, pharmaceuticals. I tried opening up more to people in my life and just, I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. It's just like as simple as that. Yeah. I'm curious to know, you know, you mentioned that there would be times that you would open up, whether it's to family or friends, or even in the context of a therapist's office, there were times that you opened up and then you kind of regretted it later because their responses were unsupportive. And we've talked before previously about that, that usually they're well-intentioned, but even well-intentioned comments, if they kind of just like twist a knife inside of you, it just kind of makes you less likely to share about it in the future. So I, I would be interested to know what some of those comments were specifically, if you can remember any of them of, you know, like, well, I'm going through IVF right now, or like I have, my baby had to stay in the NICU. And then somebody said something comforting. Like if there's anything that you can remember, just so that there's a little bit of a take home for people that might not know, and maybe have somebody struggling with fertility in their lives, maybe they want to be more supportive. Yes. I would say, I would say all of the comments that I got were absolutely well-intentioned. Maybe some people have people in their lives who would like be jerks on purpose. Mm -hmm. And in which case that's a whole other separate, but, and, and, but like you said, sometimes the intention almost doesn't matter because they, they were all coming from a very um, well-intentioned place, but it doesn't necessarily make what they say hurt less to you just because you know, um, you know, that they weren't trying to hurt you. So I would say we talked about this. Um, and this to me, you know, we're talking about it with infertility, um, with going through IVF or something that's really difficult. Possibly you haven't moved to IVF yet, but you're doing other ART and it's, it has failed things like this. Um, or you've had a miscarriage or you have had a, pregnancy loss, or you've had, um, late or early or even a complicated pregnancy like mine. Um, but, but really this kind of applies to all, um, traumatic events or grief, or when, when your friends are coming to you and saying, I've been through this really hard time. It doesn't really matter what the hard time is, right. Could be, could be all these things we're talking about. Could be a car accident that they were in, or they lost someone in their life. We, often try as their loved ones to make it better in some way. And I want to strongly caution people against starting any sentence with at least. I promise you <laughs> that whatever comes out of your mouth after that is not going to make the person, A, it's not going to make the person feel better. It's almost certainly going to make the person feel worse because when they're saying this to you of, like I can, you know, I can use my own example or whatever. Um, you know, with my son, it was like, well, at least he's happy and healthy now. 
that's very true. But when I was really gripped by the raw like trauma that I had been through with him, that was not helpful. And in fact, it feels like you were kind of erasing the time that your friend or loved one has spent in that place. Like it, that doesn't just all go away for them. Um, and it's, it's just sort of the same, just because you get pregnant does not take away any, like the trauma of infertility, just because you bring home a baby does not take away the trauma of a previous pregnancy loss or a previous pregnancy complication, just because you have end up having a birth that goes exactly according to your plan doesn't take away the trauma that you might've had from a prior um, birth trauma where you really feel like um, it did not go according to your plan and, and that it was not a good situation. So these things like, we do like to put a positive spin on things as human beings. Um, but I would just say, I think we all need to get comfortable just across the board. Again, this goes for like any, really any grief or trauma. And it's, it's really hard. I had someone, a very good friend go through a really difficult time. And I often found myself like starting to say some of these things. Um, but what people need is, um, they need to feel heard is the main thing. Again, that kind of like goes back to why I wanted to start trying times because I want, that's like, that's the first step is you need to feel heard, acknowledged understood. Um, if you can't even get through that door, it's going to be a really difficult sell to continue someone opening up to you and telling their story. Um, and then frankly, we need to get comfortable with providing love and support, but from a place of sort of futility and knowing that I cannot take away this pain that you're going through for you. That's going to be something that is going to take time and it's going to take probably work on on that person's part, but as the friend, you can't, um, make them better, but you can do things to help them feel better. Um, you can't, I mean, it's really more about actions at that point than any words, but if you're going to say words, I would suggest things like, thank you for opening up and telling me that whole story. I had no idea what you were going through back then, or I, I can't understand what you're going through. That sounds like it was incredibly difficult for you. I, I don't know how you, you really made it through and just supportive language like that. No, at least no, um, just don't try to spin it. You don't have to try to spin it in, in, a, in any kind of positive way. You're not going to fool the person into thinking that it's actually a good thing, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, um, yeah, but, but of course, again, and, and like I said, it's actions, cook this person a meal and bring it over. And if they're a very social person, you know, your loved ones best, right? If they're a very social person, come over and hang out with them, bring some brownies, just chill on the couch. If they're very, I get very antisocial when I'm going through things like this. And I would hope that people would know that about me who are close to me you know, leave, leave a coffee on my front door step, you know, so I don't have to, when you're, sometimes when you're really in the thick of this, you're crying and you don't, 
you have makeup on, you haven't brushed your teeth and you don't really want to see people, you know, like just, but there are things you could do. Even send someone a card in the mail, like snail mail, you know what I mean? Like there's, you don't even have to like spend money. I'm not saying you like these need to be gifts or anything, but, um, I think it's a little bit more, um, it feels a little better when, it, when there's like an action and less of, um, you know, when it's less, uh, a verbal response. Cause there's almost, again, there's nothing you can say that's going to take that person's pain away. And we all have to recognize that. Um, but all you can do is be there for that person while they're going through their pain. That's an uncomfortable place to be. No one wants to watch their loved ones suffering and going through difficult times, but all you can do, you're just, you're just backing them up. You can't, um, you can't take away their pain. So don't, um, yeah, just don't try to put a positive spin on it. Um, I think would be the number one thing. And it's very pre-programmed in us to try to do it. It's very hard to get, to get over trying to do that for people, but, um, yeah, it's just, that would be a main thing to avoid. And the main thing to do would be just kind of show up with your presence and with your actions more than with words. Yeah. And one of the things that popped into my head that I really appreciate from friends is, which I think this could be, it kind of depends on the person, but for me personally, I like when people ask me what they can do to help, what they can do to be supportive. And sometimes like when you're really in the thick of it, you don't know. And so Mm -hmm. if they say, I don't know, then maybe like you can think about the things that you know about them and what would maybe be helpful. But sometimes like I have a friend that asks me that and I ask her that all the time. And a lot of the time I just say, I just appreciate you listening to me, you know, like letting me just kind of be grumpy and authentic and not want to be positive or grateful about anything just like listening to my raw real experience but I appreciate being asked and it and it helps me to reflect on it too like oh yeah what would be helpful what am I looking for right now do I kind of want some advice do I want to meet up or talk on the phone or you know like what exactly would be helpful and like I said people are not always in that space to be able to identify but if they are, it can be helpful to, to ask. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely no harm in asking. And I think because sometimes people do go into these conversations where they're one or the other, right? Like, yeah, no, I actually, I actually like, am asking for your advice. Like, can you give me feedback or can you give me an opinion or the opposite way? I do just want to vent. I just want to like, kind of like word vomit and just like, you're my sounding board. And, um, So it's definitely like good to check in. And if you have, if you are the person being asked, like, just please be honest about what, you know what I mean? If someone's asking you that question, just be honest about what it is. If you don't know, I mean, that's kind of a whole, and that's fine. That's just kind of a whole other aspect to it. And some people feel, um, you know, the other thing about it is when you're going through stuff like this, sometimes people will be like, oh, well, is there anything I can do? that's sometimes a very difficult question as well, because again, well, so first of all, there's, there's again, nothing you can do that's going to make the person better, so to speak. Um, And then, you know, it's kind of like, let me know if you need help with anything kind of thing. 
it depends on your personality, but some people are not inclined to ask for help, even when they're struggling. Like I was just saying back when I was going through the anxiety, you know, I, I, I couldn't, or I wouldn't. So that's kind of, that's kind of difficult because if you wait for the person to, to give you an idea of something that you can do, you might never hear from them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's hard to ask for help. That's another thing we're really bad at as human beings. Um, so yeah, you might have to get creative, use your knowledge of this person. Presumably you're quite close if you're going to be sort of on the inner inside of this situation and hear and hearing about it and stuff. Um, so yeah, you might have to sort of get a little more creative of how, how I wonder what kind of things could support this person, because I, sometimes you might not get someone who's going to be so even conscious of what they need or want or willing to share that because it can feel like, I don't know, just sometimes it just sort of feels like we're we're not supposed to do that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we're not supposed to like go ask for help, which is absurd, but um, (laughs) it happens. It's a feeling that I think we've all had. So um, yeah, um, you can point them to people like me who, um, have been through it and are here to listen. There's a, there's a big difference between what I just said and saying something like, oh, you've, you're going through IVF or, oh, you've had, um, you know, multiple miscarriages. I totally get it. You know, my best friend's niece went through this. That's different. I would not recommend that approach (laughs) that I just said. Um, and that's, again, something we do as human beings, we try to make connections and we we're trying to have a frame of reference. Um, but, um, yeah, if you can really, um, empathize, absolutely do it. If not, if it's out totally outside of your, your experience and you can't make a connection like that, again, it's totally fine to say, like, I can't even imagine like going through that, but like you said, um, thank you for telling me. Thank you for trusting me with this. Thank you for engaging me in this conversation and bringing me into the fold. Like all of that is really good. Yeah. So since you have mentioned that people can reach out to you, can you tell everyone where they can find you on social media, website? Yeah. Wherever you're most active. Yeah, I would say I'm probably currently most active on Instagram, which is just at trying times coach. Um, I usually hashtag things trying times. So you could look at that too. Although I think it's also a comic strip, (laughs) so it'll be comics and also infertility content. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I have a Facebook page, which is, um, trying times life coaching. And I also have a website, tryingtimescoach.com. Um, and all my contact information is all over the place. So you can really reach me anywhere but yeah I've done Facebook messages I've done Instagram DMs I've done kind of the gamut um I'm very reachable (laughs) um if you will but yeah um it's and and I would actually say Instagram in general has been a very um rewarding place to be in the infertility space I only recently um kind of got into that using Instagram in that regard and searching for these groups. I'm a little bit of an older 
I don't know what I am. Am I a geriatric millennial? I'm not sure, but I think um, I am I too. This. Are you 37? <laughs> I, yes. Yeah, me too. I'm like, where am I? What are we? But I, I think, I don't know what I we think are. we're millennials, but we're elderly millennials. We're sure. elderly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're pushing the boundaries of whatever we are, but, um, totally. so yeah, but I, I just didn't, um, I wasn't, you know, I had a personal Instagram, but even when I was going through really the, the majority of my infertility struggle, I wasn't like, um, it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me to like look on Instagram and now, and maybe this wasn't the case years ago, but now there are so many really helpful accounts. There are really, people are starting to recognize that maybe this like toxic positivity stance that we've really taken as Americans for a long time on how we deal with grief and trauma is not, um, beneficial in almost all cases. And, um, there's really good people who are more like you, who are really wellness oriented and, and holistic wellness. And how do you get your body to, um, the optimal place before you're even undertaking these things. And just, there's just, there's so much knowledge and there's so many great accounts, um, yours obviously being one of them. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, it really was very eye opening when I started looking on Instagram, I was like, I can't, I can't believe there's, there's just wealth of, uh, information there. So I, I actually highly recommend it. Um, there's so many people going through this and, um, being really open and, and, um, active and sharing their story. So yeah, look for it. me, look for you, look for just pick a hashtag that applies to you and just go, I mean, these are, there's just really amazing women and doctors and other, all kinds of practitioners out there to, that can, um, support, even just reading about it, just reading about people, other people going through the same thing and talking about the same stuff. It's really, really helpful. Totally. Yeah. And all of that will be linked in the show notes. Um, so you just scroll down wherever you're listening to this episode and the show notes are linked there. Any last words for the listeners before we wrap up today? Um, oh my gosh, last words. Um, it's okay if there aren't any. No, <laughs> no, I would just say, well, the one, let me say this, because I think this is important. And like I was saying to you just in our chat before, but don't let yourself sort of, these things take a toll, right? Infertility takes a toll whenever it happens in primary infertility, secondary infertility. Um, however long you've been dealing with it, maybe it's six months, maybe it's six years. Um, you're going into different ART protocols. You're doing IVF. You're preparing to be a foster parent or an adoptive parent. You've gone through, um, pregnancy losses. These things can sort of snowball and, it's harder to walk through it when you've sort of not been honoring your mental health journey along the way. And that is very much what happened to me, starting with the postpartum anxiety from my first. And um, I didn't realize that until really recently, but it really had all built up. There's just layers and layers and layers of these different little um, things that I was grieving for part of this process and things that didn't you know, I thought would be completely different. And, um, so if at all possible, try to open up to some people, it can be a friend, if that's a good fit, it can be someone like me, who's a neutral third party, if that's a good fit. Um, but just don't let it, um, incorporate that, I guess, into your, 
into your plan, whatever you're prioritizing for your physical health on your pregnancy journey, prioritize your mental health as well. Love it. So important. Well, thank you again so much for being here today. Thank you again for having me again. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you think might benefit from hearing some of the information that was shared here today. If you're interested in finding more about me, you can find me on my website at rosebudwellness.com, on Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness, or on Facebook at the Rosebud Wellness community. Also, if you're feeling called to leave a, a rating or writing a review, that would be amazing. It really helps to get the podcast out to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.